The following presentation was produced by the Buddhist Society of Victoria. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. Great. So tonight's talk is about why me? Life is filled with experiences with many twists and turns and ups and downs. At times, everything seems to be going perfectly, and then it suddenly goes downhill. Some seems to be blessed with good fortune, while others always struggle in their day-to-day -day living. Who decides how the dice falls? Is it me or things beyond my control? How can we better understand this and develop ways to, def to deal with what life offers? So Ajahn, please enlighten us tonight. Me? Yes. Why me? <laughs> you got me there. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Thank you very much, Wally. And also, the question actually, why me, is actually learning how to give meaning in life. These microphones are excellent because uh, we are building a meditation retreat center, but I remember one retreat center we hired many years ago, and I was teaching the retreat, and on a Sunday morning when I started giving the talk, the retreat was actually owned by the Catholic Church. And as I was giving the talk, the priest ran in. And he ran in to where I was giving the talk, said, please shut off the microphone, please shut it off. I say, why? Because the microphone was actually not connected only to our, microphone, our loudspeakers, it was also connected to the church as well. And he was supposed to be giving the sermon, but he couldn't hear his talk. They heard my talk instead. And I said, no, no, keep it on. He said, no. <laughs> so sometimes these things sorts of happen in life, but why they happen? Is it really a bad thing it happens? A lot of times, because we laughed together, the priest and myself, it was just a nice little story we could share later on. Whatever happens to you in life, it doesn't really matter what happens, but what is most important is what you make of what happens, how you deal with it, and how you can make sure that that is included into your life. And when it's included into your life and you make something positive out of it, then it does have meaning in life. So when you say, why me? Why is trying to find some meaning into what happened in life. And you know that sometimes we can always feel that, oh, this is terrible, I've got bad luck, I was born on the wrong side of the tracks. But I actually was born on the wrong side of the tracks. Where I was born was a very poor place, and we only had uh, a very small, what they call council flat, government subsidized housing where I was born. But nevertheless, because there was four people, my mum, my dad, and my brother and myself, we had to live so close together. And I thought this was normal. It's only later on in life you saw like big houses. And nowadays I think it was a great good fortune to live in a small house. Because um, my mother and father couldn't hide anything from the kids, I remember quite a few times when they would have an argument. And they would fight. And then once they had an argument, the kids were around, my brother and I. And then afterwards they looked at the kids myself and my brother, and then they made up. They made up in front of us. And what I learned from that was that arguments and not getting on with one another from time to time are normal. 
They're natural, they're part of life. Any couples here have never had an argument, ever? So you had arguments. And members of our Buddhist Society of Victoria Committee, have you had arguments? <laughs> oh dear. That's normal, but what I learned from that experience was you make up afterwards. And sometimes seeing my mother and father having had an argument, hug and kiss in front of their two children, I learned so much from that. Number one, having differences of opinion is normal, is natural, but what is most important, you learn how to make up afterwards and live in peace and harmony together. That was more important. And so, honestly, sometimes when my mum and dad had an argument, I thought, well, great, I'm going to see something beautiful soon. And that's what I did see, them making up. And my brother and I, he was senior to me, a couple of years older, so bigger and tougher. And that made me learn how to run faster. <laughs> but we learned how to live together in peace and harmony. And, of course, we had shared a room for about 17, 18 years together. And because we shared a small room together, that also meant that I learned how to love my brother. These days, if you have a family and you have a house, please don't put your children in a separate room. Put them in the same room. They may make, may make a lot of noise, but at least they learn how to live in peace and harmony together. All of those people, like the Sri Lankan people here, who were born in Sri Lanka, sometimes you grew up in a small village, sometimes it wasn't just two people to a room, sometimes it was about five or six, seven, eight, nine, ten in a room, that's all you had. But what happened was you learned how to love one another, and you became friends for life. And look at my brother, my brother was a banker, and I was a Buddhist monk, total opposite ends of the spectrum, but can we still care for one another? And that's a beautiful thing to do about the meaning of life. Don't ever think, I'm poor, why me? You think, yeah, I am poor, let's make the best out of this. Get the advantages from this. And so often that's what I learned from life. It doesn't matter what life throws at you, it's what you make of it. The old story, which I'm sure that many of you remember, because I said, many of you have said when I was signing your books, you've seen me before on YouTube, this is one of those stories which is so great, it can be used for almost anything, that when you go home and you tread in the dog shit, what do you do? Please excuse me for saying the word S-H-I-T, because I can quote you, if you like, the Buddha telling his monks and nuns, you must use the local language whenever you give a sermon. <laughs> I don't need to explain any more. This is Melbourne. <laughs> And so anyway, so when you tread in the dog shit on the way home, what should you do? Please never scrape it off your feet or your shoes, at least not yet. Wait till you get home in your garden. That's the place to scrape the shit off. Under the mango tree or the apple tree, doesn't matter what you like, under that. When you, shake, um, you scrape the shit off under the mango tree, what's going to happen? One year later, you're going to get the juiciest, sweetest mangoes ever in Melbourne. And when you do, please offer some to the monks and the nuns, because we like mangoes too. And when you're eating that mango, you must always remember what you're eating. 
And it's been transformed into sweet, juicy mango. And I don't know if you know the origin of that story. The origin of that story was my sixth year as a monk over in uh, Thailand. I had this gorgeous monastery I was staying in. It was staying in a monastery in the far north in the middle of a tea plantation. I'm English. That's where I was born. And to be a monk in the middle of a tea plantation, that was like heavenly for me. Had as much tea as I could drink. And not only that, there was a very deep cave there. And I'd go there in the morning, maybe nine o'clock after having my one meal of the day, go into that cave and meditate there most of the day and come out about four o'clock in the afternoon. And outside of that cave, there was a papaya tree. And that papaya tree, that was the juiciest, sweetest papayas I've ever tasted in my life. You know why? Because there were so many bats in that cave that when they flew out, that's where they did their poo. And all that poo from the bats went into that papaya tree and they made it the juiciest, sweetest papaya you could ever have in your life. So that's actually where that simile came from, from real life. But it was useful because when you do have difficulties in your life, you should never say, why me? You should say, thank you. Thank you, you've had this great opportunity. And example of that, that you already mentioned, I was at the back there, that my preceptor was a, a monk called Somdev Buddhajan. That's like a Thai title. He eventually became the acting uh, head monk of Thailand, Sangharaja. And I remembered him telling me the story that years previously, that the head monk of Thailand was a very good monk, and the number two monk was also a very good monk. But the number three monk, he was just so ambitious. He wanted to be the number one monk, but there was two monks in front of him. So he decided the number one monk was getting very old. It wouldn't be long before he passed away. The number two monk, he said, I've got to get rid of him. And the way he tried to get rid of him, he accused this number two monk of being a communist. This was many years ago when people were so afraid of communists that they made it illegal. So they took many of his talks, edited this and edited that, put them together, and they convinced the court of law that he was a communist. So this monk got put in jail. He got put in jail for over two years. And then eventually they found out that he was set up. It wasn't really a good conviction at all. And also the first monk had died, and the second monk who had said all of this also was found out to be wrong, and he died too. So when this monk was released from jail, they said, sorry, we shouldn't have done this. We were wrong. But you know what this monk said? He'd been put in jail for two years on a charge which was fixed up. It was a false charge. He said, no, thank you. Those were two of the best years of my monk's life. I never needed to give a talk. I never needed to sign any books. No one asked me any questions. I didn't have to go anywhere. I could sit in this this uh, cell in one of the prisons. And it was peaceful enough. 
I got food every day, which was good enough. I had no responsibilities and duties at all. And I could go to the library and catch up on all my reading and meditate. He said, it was the best two or three years of my monk's life. And I thought, wow, that was a really, really good monk. Even though you were put in jail, you don't complain about it, you make the best use of it. So would you like to go to jail? Sometimes it's very... <laughs> It's very attractive to me. <laughs> One of our monks, you know I used to go and teach in prisons. One of our monks was teaching in a new prison and the, the prisoners started to get to like him. He was a very kind man and, and told new jokes to them which they couldn't hear outside. And so anyway, that one day they asked him, can you stay a bit longer? We want to actually give you a cup of tea and ask you some questions. So he stayed a bit longer and they asked him questions. What's it like being a monk in Australia, a Buddhist monk? Do you know what time of the day we usually get up? It's four o'clock in the morning. And then the prisoner said, four o'clock in the morning? Even murderers don't have to get up that time. What bad karma did you do, monks, to have to get up so early? But then what do you do? Can you turn on the TV and watch the, you know, the, the morning news or the late night movie or anything? No, we don't watch TVs. We meditate. Oh, okay. Then what about breakfast? Now, we've got a bit soft these days. Sometimes we have breakfasts. But in those old days, we didn't have any breakfast at all. If I did have a breakfast, I'd have one of these cups with, I think, three Weetabix in, and that was it. And he said, is that all you get? Because in prison, you can get anything you want. You can get pancakes, waffles, bacon and eggs. You can have anything. He said, no, that's all we get in monastery, which Atom Brahm runs. That's terrible, they said. But what do you do after breakfast? You know, can you go and have a relaxing uh, walk or just go and sleep or something? He said, No. After breakfast, we have to work. Is that the case, Ajahn Mudito? How much do you work? Oh, yeah, really hard. <laughs> and when we said how much we work, the prisoners were really aghast. They wouldn't make us work that hard in jail, they said. And then after, what, what about your lunch? And you know, the lunch we eat out of our bowl. Usually everything goes in one bowl. One of the reasons why in the fundraiser for the Newbury Buddhist Monastery they wrote a cookbook and they asked me to do the introduction. So I gave a couple of my recipes. And these are recipes, food I've actually eaten in Thailand. Once it was sticky rice, you know the glutinous rice? With a frog on the top. I, I was a vegetarian before I became a monk, but this was what the villagers ate. What they ate, I had to eat. Just one frog on top. It was quite a nice big-sized one. It wasn't fried, it wasn't sautéed, it was just boiled. No salt, no chili, no pepper, no seasoning at all. Just a boiled frog on top of a... a, <laughs> a stick Honestly... And then you had to be, there was one time, any kids here, 
please, when you go to school, always pay attention, especially to biology. I knew my biology. I knew one part of a frog from the other part of the frog, so I knew what to eat. The monk sitting next to me, this is a true story. The monk sitting next to me, he pressed one of the organs. It was a, it was a frog's bladder. Yeah, the frog peed all over his rice. And, uh, <laughs> that was the end of the meal for him. He went hungry that day. <laughs> so I put that in the, the recipe book. <laughs> frog on rice. <laughs> One of the other things which I remember eating, we had some spaghetti bolognese. This was no quite good food. And somebody, I think it was in Australia, somebody put um, strawberry ice cream on top of it in the bowl. We tried to keep it separate at first, but when they carried my bowl up, I opened the lid and there was strawberry ice cream on spaghetti bolognese. Have you ever eaten that? So why do you always say, yuck? You should try it one day to find out for sure. <laughs> Actually, it was yucky. But these are the sorts of things which, you know, you didn't like to eat, but you did eat. And what did you do when that happened? That was your one meal of the day. Nothing in the afternoon or evening, that was it. So quite a few times when these things did happen, you just made the best out of them. You didn't say, why me? You said, this is wonderful, let's eat it. This is how, what the villagers eat. And it keeps them going. So why don't you try it too? That sort of positive attitude to things meant you weren't going to get negative at all. And you learned how to deal with the diarrhea which came afterwards. <laughs> but even that, it wasn't that bad. That attitude of not being fault-finding and complaining. And whenever you say, why me? The answer is obviously, why not? It has to happen to somebody. And you don't compare yourselves to others. You just don't know. And so sometimes I used to think, all the times I was upset about what happened, I said, no, it's an opportunity to learn more. Going to prison, you know, that was, for that monk, was an opportunity, and he took that. Even when I was 19, you know, I, I don't know if you asked this question about me earlier, I don't know if you know this question, this question. when I fell in love, I fell in love with this beautiful girl when I was only 19. We loved each other so much for about six months. And after six months, she dumped me. Was that bad? Should I say, why did you do that to me? No, I said, thank you. If you hadn't have dumped me, I could never become a monk. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much. So instead of seeing the negative part of that life, you saw the positive part. It gave you more opportunities in different areas which you never forgot, never um, perceived at first. So much of the life you never think that you, know, you had bad luck. It was just an opportunity. Good opportunity, bad opportunity, never think like that. It's just an opportunity. It's how you deal with it makes it good or makes it bad. 
So whatever happens in life, you learn how to accept it and give it meaning. Meaning is not inherent in the experience. Meaning is what you give to what happens to you in life. It's how you interpret it, what you make of it. And I've found in all the years I've been alive, did you ask how old I was? You know how old I really am? I'll tell you, it's, it's um, I've just got to work it out quickly. I think it's 838. I'm a monk, I can't lie. Is that true? Do I lie? No, I don't lie. 838. You've got that down there in the book? Uh, 838 months. <laughs> Why always say your age in years? It's just no, almost 71 soon. So I worked it out, 838. Is that right? Close anyway. 837, I think. But anyway, that when you look at life and you add something more to it, something more interesting, life is what happens when you add to things, the way you interpret it. Even little things. Over at Newbury yesterday, after you know, you give a talk or after all the ceremonies, one thing which I learned from one monk in Thailand, Afterwards, how do you celebrate anything? And I'm sure at the end of this talk, we'll practice this, at the end of any talk, you know, sometimes we say three sadhus. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. And I was listening to that so many times from people after I really give my best to give a talk, and afterwards, sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. It's really depressing if you sit up here. So I got people to actually say three big sadhus. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. You're going to have a go at that in a moment. I expect at the end of the talk, not yet, because I've got some more talk to give first. What that does is what you give to whatever you do. And that makes it enjoyable, powerful, and happy for everybody. And all the other things which I have to do in my life, I never think, why me? It's like, why not? And whenever you have the opportunity to give, I don't give money because I haven't got any. What I do, I give my energy, my time, my service, my love, however much I can do. But it did happen to me once. This is one of those true stories. When you say, why me? I got myself into a difficult situation. How do you get out of difficult situations? This was when I was visiting Singapore for the first time and they took me into the different temples to show me around. And one of the temples they took me into was the Sri Lankan temple in Singapore. And after showing me around, the abbot asked me to sign the visitor's book. But being a bit stupid, I made a big mistake. I wrote down my name, the address, and the next column was, how much are you donating? It wasn't a visitor's book I picked up. I picked up the donation book by mistake. <laughs> and you couldn't rub it out and say sorry. I had to write something down. And so sometimes when you put yourself in a difficult situation and you rise to the occasion, what I put down there 
is just two words, M-Y, second word, L-I-F-E, my life. And I thought that was a wonderful donation to make, you know, to know what I love, you know, the Dharma, Buddhism, meditation. When I do something, I give the whole lot. Don't keep anything back. And I thought that was an interesting example of being put in a difficult situation, but rising to that occasion. I'm very happy what I wrote down there. So instead of scrubbing something out, you make the best of it. And again, anything which happens in my life, you always try to do that best, no matter what it happens to be. You give it meaning. You don't expect, you get sacked from work. How many people get sacked from work? How many people got sacked the last year from work? None of you. <laughs> oh, one of you, yeah, great. So lucky. Because <laughs> sometimes people think, oh, I've got no job now. But you have time. You may not have much money, but you have time. Time for the people you love and care for. Time for your family. Time for your friends. Even time to go to the temple, which you love, if you love temples. How often before, when the economy was booming in Australia, the people would say, yeah, they'd love to help out, they'd love to go to the temple, they'd love to spend time and go on holiday somewhere. They couldn't find the time. They were time poor. And whenever something happens, like you get locked down. How long was Melbourne in lockdown? You weren't in lockdown. You were on retreat. Just give it a different name, for goodness sake. When you're on retreat, it's an opportunity. Not to try and get rid of the lockdown as soon as possible, but an opportunity to do different things, to explore more, spend more time with yourself and others, and all of those books you would love to read, all of those movies you'd like to see on, on the internet or whatever. It gives you time, and also time to rest. It's one of the things which... People sometimes, they get fed up, they get depressed, they get all these so-called uh, emotional problems, mental diseases, lack of mental health. And that's such a big thing at this time in Australia. And sometimes I ask myself, why? Why is mental health problems such a big deal these days? It is because we forgot how to keep cultivating our mental health. Sometimes when people have stress, why? Because you're tired. I've said this, I remember before noticing that people who can come to like a retreat, they may sort of feel a bit sort of dull and depressed when they first come. But real retreats, you're never asked to do anything. When I have a teacher retreat, we always make sure we have something we call noble silence. You know what noble silence means? No bells. <clears throat> you don't have a, a, a clock to wake you up in the morning. When you want to wake up, you wake up. That's called noble silence. And many times when people don't have bells to wake them up, they don't have bells to tell them to go here or go there, then many of them actually win the Nobel Peace Prize. 
In other words, they have peace rather than being controlled. They can rest as much as they need to. And when you rest as much as you need to, a lot of time you get very healthy and happy. You can start appreciating many other things in life. I'm not I'm going off subject here, but actually I should really go back to the prison story. I only got back to lunch, eating in one bowl. But then they said, what do you do in the afternoon? You know, can you just uh, play sport? I know that Melbourne is a big sporting city. And so sometimes I remember when I first started as a monk here in Australia, I thought it would be good to form a Buddhist, say, footy team. You know, the <laughs> BSV footy team. It would actually allow us to, to maybe just um, connect with Melbourne society. Maybe we can play against the Catholics or the Anglicans and see who's the best. But then I thought, <laughs> how can I tell this joke? Are there any Catholics here? Okay, this was some years ago. Please excuse me for going off, off the track record again. Off track. Um, there was the Pope and the Archbishop of Canterbury, you know, the head of the Catholic Church and the head of the Anglican Church, they wanted to actually to find out you know, who was the right form of Christianity. And so they decided, they had arguments, but that never solved anything. One of them suggested, let's have a match of golf. And whoever wins the golf match, it must be God deciding who's the best. If the Pope wins, then the Archbishop of Canterbury has to convert to being a Catholic. And if the, if the Anglican Archbishop wins, the Pope has to become an Anglican. Fair, fair. Let God decide. So it got to the last hole. And at the last hole, the Archbishop was three shots ahead. A long way ahead. And if he sunk this putt, he would win. And the Archbishop of Canterbury would have to convert. Would change the whole world. And so he asked the caddy. The caddy was a was a nun, a Catholic nun. <laughs> Why are you laughing at that for? <laughs> so I asked the caddy, Sister, please give me the putter. And he took the putter, he lined it up, an important stroke. He could change the whole of Christianity if he hold this putt. He hit it too hard. He went past went past the hole. And he couldn't stop himself but saying, oh, damn it, missed. And they, the nun said, your holiness, saying to the Pope, you swore. That's not the right thing to do. And the Pope said, well, you know, it was really an important putt. I really apologize. I was just too stressed. So he asked for another putter. He sank this hole. At least he would win by one stroke. He lined it up. He hit it. And it went past the hole, not in it. He said, damn it, missed. And the, the nun, she crossed herself. Look, I warned you, you mustn't do that. You know, that's, that's uh, swearing. He said, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. It was too important part. And he had one more part. It was only to draw. If he missed this part, he would lose. and would have to become an Anglican, a Protestant. 
So this was really important. He lined it up and he hit the ball. He went straight for the hole, but just stopped a millimeter before. He couldn't help himself. Damn it, missed, said the Pope. And then the nun, she crossed herself again. But before she could scold the Pope, there was this big flash of thunder and a big bolt of thunder came down and killed the nun. <laughs> and from the skies you could hear the voice of a heavenly being, damn it, missed. <laughs> I do apologize, not, but not really. <laughs> Sorry. We all make mistakes. <laughs> but anyway, going back to what you do afterwards, can you play sport? So, no, the monks can't play sport. The reason I played tiddlywinks was because it didn't really matter who won and who lost, it was just good fun. But I thought that if we did have a Buddhist AFL team, how would it work? Remember, we run because of compassion is really important. So if the other team wanted the ball, of course you'd give it to them. <laughs> you would never tackle them. That would be just, you know, too aggressive. <laughs> and you'd always make sure you lost. Otherwise, it would hurt the other team. So I realized starting a Buddhist AFL team wouldn't work. <laughs> so we know we don't play sport in the afternoon in monasteries. Well, what do you do? Oh, we meditate. Sometimes people work in the afternoons, like Ajahn Medita, making sure all the, uh, the building work is done properly. What about dinner in the evening? Dinner? Monks don't have dinner. Just frog and rice once a day is more than enough. <laughs> To, to endure. So, yeah, so we do some meditation, maybe listen to a talk. What time do you go to bed? Bed? Over in Newbury Buddhist Monastery, you got a bed for me, but where I actually live, the cave over in uh, Bodhinyana, where I live, I sleep on the floor. We don't have beds. You know, one of the reasons I sleep on the floor? because you can always roll over and you never fall out of bed. It's a much better way to sleep. <laughs> and I never get up on the wrong side of the bed in the morning. I don't know what side of the bed I get up on, you just keep rolling. <laughs> but anyhow, when they, we said that to these prisoners, one of them, this is, this is true, I, do, I, don't, I, may, I make up many things, but this part of the story is absolutely true. He said, that's terrible in your monastery. Why don't you come in here and stay with us instead? <laughs> he was invited to stay in the prison because one way of looking at things, monastic life in Australia is much harder than what you do in a prison. In a prison you get three good meals a day. You get a nice bed to sleep in. You don't have to work so hard. You can watch the TV if you want to watch TV. You can play AFL football with your friends. I don't know what else you can do in there. But in a monastery, you can't do any of that. So why are there more monks 
waiting to try and get into Bodhinyana Monastery. And there's so many people waiting to try and get out of prison. Why? What is the difference between a prison and freedom? A prison is any place you don't want to be. Freedom is just wanting to be here. You ever seen prison or any place? If you make the best use of it, you want to be here, then you never feel that you aren't free. So, your job you're in, do you like the job you're in? Or would you like to get a better job? If you want to get a better job, you're like in prison. You don't like being here. If you're in a relationship, you don't like. It feels like you're in prison again. But when you want to be here, you're free. Sometimes if you have a sickness, an illness, and you don't like it, then you're in a prison again. But when you can appreciate some of the benefits, and I'm saying this carefully, some of the benefits of your sickness, then you can feel free. This one gentleman was talking to me for counseling. He was clinically depressed. And when I started talking to him, I asked him what he had for breakfast that morning. He said, ice cream. You had ice cream for breakfast? He said, yes, two bowls of it. Because I'm depressed, I can eat whatever I like. I said, listen, please, when you get better, don't tell your wife. Don't tell her you're better, otherwise you'll have to give up eating ice cream in the morning. And he understood, he said, yes, I understand that. <laughs> there are benefits, and sometimes people don't see those benefits. They want things to be different. Please make peace with whatever situation you're in right now. When you make peace, you can find benefits. And never you say, why me? You always say, thank you. There's sometimes that um, all the work and jobs we have to do in a monastery or anywhere, whatever you have to do. Do you really reject? You don't want to do it? Why do I have to work harder than other people? We always say in any institution is about 10% do all the hard work and 90% are passengers. You may get paid the same amount of money, but a few people really put their heart into what is being done. And they're the real ones who really keep the thing going. Now, which ones are you? And do you reject and think, why me? Why do I have to work so hard and other people don't? Please understand that I learned years ago from someone like an Ajahn Chah, if I have to work harder, it's a privilege. Thank you for giving me that opportunity to work harder than others. And I see it in a totally different way. So much so that you teach that a lot to the young monks, people like an Ajahn Mudito over there in the front. Teach them so that they do work harder than maybe some of the other monks in the monasteries in which they live. And they do that because it's a privilege. It's like giving service. And I get so much joy and happiness out of that. So much so that recently, maybe 
a, a couple of people were there over in Perth during the time I did a, a WASAC ceremony. In the morning time, this was not this last Sunday, but eight days ago, in the morning I had a cough. It was very hard to chant, very hard to talk, and I felt terrible. But I was the only one who could do that ceremony, so I did that ceremony. And a sensible person would have just taken a rest. It wasn't COVID, it was just a bit of tiredness. But a sensible person would have taken a rest. But that's not how I was trained. If you can do it, you do do it. And I gave it everything I got for that day. And then what happened in the afternoon, in the evening? I got so inspired. I got huge amounts of energy coming up because I was doing something which was wonderful for our community over there on Waysack Day. It was a full moon night. And when I started walking, we do the circumambulation walk around the shrine for three times. I was so inspired. And that was the end of my cough. I never coughed after that. And many people in the audience were sort of struck. Especially I remember just going back to monastery afterwards. Some of the other Anagarikas we call them, these are the people trained to become monks. Where's your cough gone, Ajahn Brahm? It disappeared just because of inspiration, doing something wonderful and joyful. And so I know now, instead of saying, why me? I say, thank you. Thank you for giving me that opportunity to work harder, to give more, and to help more. And that gives a lot of benefits. Instead of why me, and always complaining and comparing yourselves to others, life gives you so many opportunities, so many opportunities to serve. And when you serve, and service is the most important part of you. I don't mean anything holy, just being able to help somebody or help yourself, or whoever it happens to be. That opportunity is so wonderful that whenever I see it coming, I say, I'm going to do that service. And give it as much as you possibly can. So many times, even simple things, that trying to um, open the door for Ajahn Mudito. I'm senior to him, and our rules means he's supposed to open the door for me. But every opportunity I can, I open it for him. Is that true, Ajahn Medita? Yeah. Why do I do that? Because it's fun. It's fun. Instead of saying, why me, why not? And that means that each one of you even, sometimes I open the door for you. And sometimes you say, no, Ajahn Brahm, you're a monk. You're a senior monk. I'll open the door for you. Some of the times that instead of sitting in the front, you sit in the back. I love doing that almost like hiding myself. I did that once in Vietnam, sitting in the back in a conference while somebody else was giving the presentation. And this Vietnamese monk sat next to me. And then he wanted to check his English and, and practice his English. So he said, where are you from? And I said, oh me, I'm from Australia. He said, Australia? He said, do you know a monk called Ajahn Brahm? Because <laughs> Ajahn Brahm doesn't really sit in the, in the back. And I said, yes, I know him very well. <laughs> I am Ajahn Brahm. And I always remember that because he went, ah! 
And that was really funny, for me anyway. But, you know, actually, all, all of that introduction, who actually am I? Some years ago, I think I told a story over in Newbury. Some years ago, I decided, actually, I said 800 and something age in months, but in years, I'm, this is my 71st year. And I qualified for a senior's health card. So I thought, why not get one? Again, I haven't been sick for in the hospital sick in years. But I thought I might as well go and get one. So I went online and then they said, no, you can't get one online. You have to actually come into the Centrelink office because only there can you have your identity confirmed. And so I went into the office and made an appointment. And then they started asking me, first question, can you prove who you are? And I told this lady there, um, I have been a monk over 48 years. I've been trying to find the answer to that question for my whole life. <laughs> and she wasn't as kind as you were. She said, listen, this is serious. Stop telling jokes. <laughs> okay. I was trying to be serious, honestly. Can we see your driver's license? I said, I don't have one. Can I see your uh, credit card? Don't have one. Your, your banking details? Don't have one. Your rental agreement where you live? Don't have one. The ownership of your house document? I don't have that. Can I see your marriage agreement, marriage license? I don't have one of those either. It's pretty obvious. And in the end, when they're asking all these things which identify you, I didn't have any of them. And so in the end, she said, well, you don't exist. And I said, the Buddha was right. <laughs> so in, instead of getting sort of upset, you turn that conversation to something which you know, was repeatable in talks. I think actually, this is the second time I've told that story, isn't it? When was the first time? Was... Yesterday. <laughs> you see, so what happens when you make a mistake like that and you tell it twice? And that what happens is you make fun of it and have a joke about it. So you don't say, why me? Why do I have to say the same story twice in a row? Uh, anyway, not everybody was there yesterday. And also I often say that I like telling talks to old elderly people. Because when you're old, you don't remember that I told that story yesterday. <laughs> so the reason I told that story was just to test out who of you have got good memory and who of you haven't. <laughs> but anyhow... Eventually I got two passports, British and Aussie, so that gave me the opportunity. He was just trying to get rid of me, but I was causing her too much problems by not being normal. So little by little, oh, I shouldn't say that again, should I? Anyway, this is actually how we, we learn to make the best of whatever happens to us in life. Whoever doesn't recognize you, or whoever gives you a hard time, you say, thank you. You never actually say, why me? It's like, thank you for giving me the opportunity to live a different life, which means you never get depressed, embarrassed, upset. Instead, you use everything which happens to you in life as an opportunity for growth and also for humor as well. So anyway, uh, is it time for questions now?
Yeah, okay. So thank you for listening so far. So what do you do at the end of a talk when you've enjoyed it? Okay, do you remember? Okay. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Thank you, because that makes me feel happier. Excellent. Thank you so much for the inspiring talk, Ajahn. Um, so we have time for questions. If you have any questions, please put your hands up. We've got two volunteers here, Jessica and Shunwei, and they will be able to give you the mic. So who wants to be the first? No one. No one. Okay. We can finish the talk then. Sorry, sorry, sorry. No? Anyone? In the past week, how many of you have said, why me? You have, yeah. I said it. <laughs> why not give a talk? Now, remember that you may respond like that, but you're missing a great opportunity to actually to see some of the negative things which happen in life and put a positive spin on them, and it makes it much better. We got a question over there. Yes, we've got questions from the. Just I remember reading an article some years ago. There's a lady who went to have a medical examination in the United States. I think she was 93 or 94, and then she'd been had a perfectly healthy life, hardly any sicknesses at all, and the doctors said, "You've got cancer." And her response, having lived 93 healthy years was, why me? <laughs> it's crazy, isn't it? 93 years you've got away with it, and now you say, why me? Anyway, your question, yeah. Uh, if, you're ex if you're trying to explain to someone what is Buddhism, how would you explain it in a good way? How would I explain it in a good way? Is like honesty, kindness, and helping people understand the meaning of life. We're not telling them what it is. Helping them to find out for themselves. And that's actually where it does differ from many other religions or paths. Instead of telling anybody, we encourage people how to find out. Giving each A good example of that, one of the years and years ago, one of the monks was asked that question. There was a couple of people who were Buddhists and they had their first child. How can we bring up our ch children? Should we actually take them to the temple every day and so they get conditioned, brainwashed into being a Buddhist? Or should we take them to you know, maybe the Catholic Church on a, a Saturday, the Anglican Church on a Friday, no, sorry, the mosque on a Friday, Anglican church on a Sunday, the Buddhist center on a Monday. It's Monday today, isn't it? Yeah, good. Shall we try and encourage, expose our children to all religions or what? What should we do? And the monk said, don't need to take your children to a temple or to a church or to a mosque. Just please encourage your children with two things with honesty and asking questions. And if you always encourage your children to ask questions, 
rather than say, I'm too busy. You're actually encouraging your children to grow in that knowledge, to ask those questions and find out the truth for themselves. And that honesty, that truthfulness, will actually make sure they don't stop on half-truths or on ideas which may sound convincing but are actually not true. Keep that honesty there and they will find out for themselves. That honesty and questioning become the most important. So, and that's actually why, why in Buddhism we always encourage people not just to believe what a monk says or a nun says or the books say, but please keep questioning and have that honesty that you won't accept the truth which doesn't make sense to you. Is that okay? Yeah. Really? Are you being honest? <laughs> Very good, thank you. <laughs> excellent question and excellent answer. Um, anyone else who might have any questions for Ajahn? Oh, there's some in the back there. Yes. Hi. Um, this this is a little bit, a little bit off topic. Is it okay if I ask? Yeah, give it a try. Okay. So I play a game that requires to kill an enemy. This, is that against the first precept? Uh, you've got to kill an enemy. In a game, yes. Oh, in a game. So it's not a real enemy. It's just a, a figure on the screen. Yeah. Great? yeah, yeah. A computer game. Yeah. Okay, yeah. No, that's not against the first precept because it's not real taking the life of a living being. Oh, okay. It has to be a living being. But nevertheless, it may be against the precepts of the company which hires you, or the school or something, where a person studies or whatever. So it's not against the first precept of killing living beings, but it may be against other precepts. Okay. Does that make any sense? Yes. Okay. <laughs> Very good. Again, to get questions, there was... Sometimes it's hard to get questions from people. So I tell this um, story, this is from one of the Buddha's suttas, about somebody came up to the Buddha and asked him, why are some people intelligent, no, not intelligent, why are some people rich and other people poor? Have a look at yourself, that sometimes you work so hard, you try so hard, but sometimes it's difficult to make money. You make some money and the government taxes it and you've got none left. Why is it so hard to make money? And why are some people rich? What karma did you do in your past life to be rich in this life? And the Buddha gave a really good answer. And then it asked the second question, why are some people born really beautiful while other people are ugly? Doesn't matter how many times you go to, to other spa to get made up, you're still ugly. And when I said this, I looked at the floor. And the reason why I looked at the floor, because when I told this anecdote, one lady in Singapore, I just happened to be looking at her when I said the word ugly, and she really complained. So the Buddha gave a good um, answer to that too. But then he asked another question. Why are some people intelligent and other people are stupid? Have you ever had a kid 
you try and give them extra tutorials, extra t training, teachings, and they still don't do well at school. Other kids, they'd hardly do any work at all, and they always do well at school. Why? And the Buddha answered, the cause for intelligence in your next life is asking questions in this life. Anyone want to be intelligent? <laughs> okay, there's a couple of people put their hands Excellent. up. Um, and also, if anyone upstairs would like to ask a question, please just come downstairs. Uh, we've got the mic here. So, yes, uh, we've got a question. Is that right, Jessica? Yeah, yes. okay. Excellent. I think I have um, a scientist and as a, a Buddhist monk. I would like to ask you this question. Since uh, a lot of uh, futurists actually predict the singularity of technological singularity, um, will it be the end of humanity or super level, super intelligent, artificial intelligence? Will that be the end of humanity? And what are your thoughts about that? Thank you. Well, but sometimes I think the singularity, you mean a black hole? The technological singularity is, um, is an idea that the technological advancement to the level that no scientist can predict what's going to be after that. Because like a whole um, event horizon, no uh, one can know anything after event horizon. So uh, the single check, uh, single, um, the, 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 the singularity of technology will be uh, the point that no one can predict what's going to be happen after that. Okay. There's one thing about that. This is a more serious question. That, and that was one of the great advances of Stephen Hawkins that he realized that black holes leak. The event horizon is not permanent. He's got what he called hawking radiation. White holes, basically. So there's no black hole will be able to suck things in beyond the event horizon forever. They will decay. I thought that was a wonderful little uh, piece of science well, these were people, one of my best friends, as you know, some of you may know, was a gentleman called Bernard Carr, Emeritus Professor Bernard Carr of Queen Mary College in uh, London University. And he was one of the close associates of Stephen Hawkins. He was actually featured in the movie of Stephen Hawkins, this fellow Bernard Carr. And this guy, Bernard Carr, was also a Buddhist, one of my best friends. He came to give a presentation at a Buddhist conference we held in Perth a couple of years ago, a few years ago. And he was also, interestingly, the president of the Psychic Research Society in London. When we were students, we used to go hunting ghosts together and all sorts of interesting stuff. Nothing was off limits for a good scientist. But... He was also saying, and I noticed this, that there's no such thing as a black hole which is permanently black. It leaks after a while. In other words, 
um, information comes out of that hole. It's almost confirming, it's such a, a weird part of physics, but it was confirming that nothing is permanent. It makes and uh, even the thing with the black holes and with uh, the Big Bang theory, thinking that's how the universe started. But because black holes can leak, it's also Big Bangs have something which happened beforehand. In other words, it's not the beginning of the universe, the beginning of time. As, as Stephen Hawkins says, he imagined a universe without boundaries. No beginnings, no ends. And just like the nature of time itself. How can we have an inf like a beginning of time? We always say, what was there before the beginning? How can we have an infinity of time? Even that is just too hard to grasp. And one of those answers, for those of you who are philosophical, many centuries ago, people, human beings, thought this earth was flat. We all know there's no such thing as a flat earth. This earth is curved. It's a sphere. It's got limited space, but no boundaries to it on planet Earth. Whatever direction you go, you come back here. Now the same we know is about space. And one of the things I remember of physics, a very simple theory, which would prove that the space, our universe, cannot be infinite. It was a powerful theory. It's not infinite. As you all know, it's got a limited space, our universe. But it's got limited space, but it's got no boundaries, no edges to it. Any physicist would know that, or astrophysicist. And it's the same with time. Why do you always think that time is flat? With a beginning and an end. Can we not sort of move our imagination, the perception, to accept that time too is curved? Limited time, but no boundaries. Of course, that's making the mind a little bit more hard to understand, but it's interesting and it's a beautiful theory and it's very close to the truth. Curved time. Okay, next question. Um, so I've got two hands up, so the first one, um, the blue shirts, and then I think the second one is the gen young gentleman on the third row, is that right? Did you, did you want to ask a question? No? Okay, sorry. And then, yeah, after that, I see you. Thank you. Uh, uh, so, like, about meditation, like, it's important. If you're, like, like, if I'm, like, a person, like, who's not really into it, but trying to get, how do you get into the habit of meditating regularly? How do you get the habit of meditating regularly? That a good example is, that when we talk about meditation, 
the way that my teacher Ajahn Chah said, meditation is food for the heart. And the whatever else you eat, whether it's rice and curry or frog on top of sticky rice, that's food for the tummy, food for the body. But meditation, spirituality is food for the heart. And if you don't eat food, you know, the ordinary food for your, for your body, you get very sick. If you don't eat health food for your body, you get sick. And food for the heart, one of the best healthy food for, for your heart is stillness, rest, peace. That's why it's called food for the heart. If you don't eat enough of that, during your day you get stressed out, you get depressed, you get all sorts of diseases even. So when you look at meditation, not as just a spiritual practice to become enlightened or whatever, it is that, but it's also food for the heart. It keeps you healthy and happy, productive, and someone who people can see their mind is very, very strong and healthy. And of course, once you realize what it is and what it does for you, of course you'll do that regularly. Do you, how many times do you eat every day? Have you ever gone without food for a few days? You know what it does for you. So that's why meditation, you do it regularly because it's spiritual health food for your heart. It's happened so often. Oh, Tell this story. How much time have I got? Oh, 10 minutes. Okay, very quickly. There was this guy years ago in Perth, always wanted to go on a meditation retreat. His wife said, no, you can't go. We're too busy. On the weekend, too many things to do. Every day, he said, okay. Every time there was a meditation retreat planned, he asked his wife, can I go? No, mother's coming this weekend. You've got to take the kids to sport. You've got to clean up the garage. You promised to do this. No, you can't go. We're too busy. And one weekend retreat, you know, he asked again, can I go on a weekend retreat? And his wife said, okay, you go and be selfish, you go on your retreat. He took that as a yes, and off he went. And when he came back, he was such an improved husband, that the next time there was a weekend retreat, he never needed to ask. She gave them the money and sent him off. She saw the results and just how that heals many, many people. So you try that if you've got like a husband who's very difficult to deal with, send him off to a retreat at NBM and you'll find he'll come back like a finely tuned car. Much better service. Okay, next question. Good afternoon, Ajahn Ram. Thank you for uh, the talk tonight. I really enjoyed that. Um, and I had a question unrelated to arguments. Uh, when we argue with someone, uh, it's really hard to think positively and rationally when we argue with someone. And my question is, how do I let go of those emotion, uh, negative emotions on my mind and my thought when I argue with someone? Because uh, for me, it's really hard to let go when I uh, argue with uh, anybody. <laughs> so. Okay. Look, uh, there was a story of these two monks arguing. They were arguing about reincarnation. One monk said, the Buddha taught reincarnation, it's part of the Dhamma. And the other monk said, no, no, how can you believe in reincarnation? You're only in the present moment, you can't be sure. 
So they had this argument. So the first monk went to the teacher, the Ajahn, went to the teacher and said, look, you know, the Buddha taught reincarnation. You have to say that's part of Buddhism. And the head monk said, yes, you're right. And then he went out and said, see, the head monk said, I'm right. So the second monk went in there by himself and said, look, you can only know what's in the present moment. How do you know there's reincarnation? And the head monk said, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, you're right. And so they went outside afterwards and the two monks said, the head monk said, I was right. No, he said, I was right. So they decided to go in there together. And when they went in there together, they put their cases to the head monk and said, you said I was right, now you say he's right. We can't both be right. And the head monk said, yes, that's right. <laughs> so when you have arguments, please remember that story. The way that my teacher Ajahn Chah would say, you're correct, but not right. You're right, but not correct. Because you had an argument, and you can't let it go. Have arguments, and when I was a young, we'd have great arguments with my friends about all sorts of religious stuff, science stuff. At the end of the argument, I was a lay person at the time, at the end of the argument, whoever won the argument had to pay for drinks for the, the whole crowd. In other words, you know, we were always friends at the very end. It's like just like my mother and father would have an argument, they'd always hug and make up at the end, always. So don't give arguments and who's the winner the most important. Give harmony more importance. So yeah. I think we've got um, someone at the back. Yes. yes. Uh, hello, Ajahn Brahm. Hello. I have a meditation question to you. Yeah, go on. Sometimes uh, when we meditate, uh, mind can go into very blissful states for a short time. And some other times the mind can go into very blissful jhana states for longer time. Mm. But uh, can you please give some suggestions so that mind can stay into blissful states for longer time? Is that what you really want? Because what happens if you go into a, a deep meditation for a long time, you'll be sitting here and we'll have to, to take you up and just put you in your car to take you home because you'll have no sense at all about what your body's up to. This happens many, many times of uh, meditators, one guy over in Perth, Sunday afternoon, was getting bored, so he told his wife he's going into his bedroom to meditate. When he went into his bedroom to meditate after an hour, he hadn't come out. Usually only meditates for 20 minutes. So his wife, or 40 minutes, his wife went in there to check on him and he was sitting perfectly still. Too still. He wasn't breathing. So she called the ambulance. And the ambulance came from the local hospital as quick as possible. Medics went in there, took his pulse, no pulse, no breathing, put him in the back of the ambulance, duh, 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 duh. took him to the hospital through the red lights and everything. The, the, uh, Medic on duty on a Sunday afternoon checked him and found out he was brain dead. At least that's what it looked like, a flat line and no heart activity. Two flat lines on the ECG and the EEG. So fortunately, the doctor on duty that day happened to be of Indian extraction. He knew the guy was meditating beforehand, so decided to give him a trial of defibrillators 
these days apparently they use adrenaline, is it adrenaline or something? But anyway, in those days they were giving defibrillators. So they put these electric shocks on him to try and get his heart going. Nothing worked until he decided to come out of meditation. He opened his eyes, and as soon as he opened his eyes, the ECG beep, beep, beep started acting normally, same as the EEG. The doctor gave him a very thorough check over, and at the end of which he could find nothing wrong with him, so told him just to go home. And he walked home with his wife. And I asked him afterwards, you know, how did you feel when they were in the back of the ambulance? Could you hear the ambulance? And no, couldn't hear anything. When they put defibrillators on your body, could you feel the electric shocks going through your body? He said, no. What were you feeling? He said, he was blissed out. He was inside the sixth sense called the mind, having a wonderful time. He said, really, was it that wonderful? He said, yes. Was there any negative part to that experience? He said, yes, there was one negative part of that experience. And that was the scolding he got from his wife on the way home. Don't you ever do that again, you scare the life out of me. But other than that, he was fine. This is one of the things we always know about deep meditation. If you are liable to get into those deep states, please give yourself a time limit beforehand. So you don't get taken to hospital. An interesting part of that the serious questions at the end of this talk, serious part of that, the difference, and one of the reasons why the doctor kept on with those defibrillators rather than sending him straight down to the morgue was because his body was warm. And all the time during an experience, the body had still had some warmth to it. It wasn't cold. And I remember just reading in the Chula Vedra Sutta, if anyone knows these suttas of the Buddha, that is how the Buddha said you tell the difference between someone in deep meditation and someone in jhanas. It's just the body is still warm. So please tell the people you live with that if you get into any jhanas. Otherwise, they'll send you to the morgue and then when you wake up from the morgue, you'll probably kill the morgue attendants. They'll think you're a zombie or something. <laughs> Bhante, I have a following up question for this. Like when somebody is in cessation of perception and feeling, can I say that that person is uh, reached some fruit, or yeah. is it possible that somebody is uh, attained cessation of perception and feeling, but he is not attained any fruit? It's no, it's not. That's not possible. But the cessation of perception and feeling, you have to go through the the jhanas and the arupa states. So it's not just you know unconscious. You've gone through these states and the mind has attained those, not attained, but experienced those things slowly, uh, stage by stage. Otherwise you can convince yourself of all sorts of things. You've just been unconscious for a short time. So I just want to clarify my understanding. So if somebody has gained cessation of perception and feeling... Uh, then they're on an anagami. Or fully enlightened, one of the two. Okay. In this case, you explained the guy went to hospital. Can I assume that he he attained cessation of perception and feeling? No, he was in a jhana. But uh, in suttas, it says that uh, 
while ja- while somebody is in jana he can also do walking and do some no, daily activity no, is cannot. it possible impossible in a jana your five external senses have been cut off you can't see hear smell taste touch your mind has got all the energy that is what you're experiencing the sixth sense of mind Okay that's just a thank you thank you a, a deep te- technical question i hope has some bored other people but you know these things actually happen you got a question there yeah go on last question ajan there you go um if you were a computer programmer yeah. and you were working for say tesla designing their autonomous vehicles yeah and in the software you had to write some code that decided if the drivers on a cliff on a road on a mountain road yeah and two little boys ran across the road does your software run them over or does it drive the car off the cliff and kill you the driver yes. you're trying to find a third option you know sometimes we always think this this or that we never actually see a third way so the you know the third way is it doesn't go over the cliff it doesn't kill the two kids it maybe just parks i'm not sure <laughs> but a lot of times life is not just this or that it's always that third option and i think you've heard me say third options many times before is you know the third option is when you get into a relationship with somebody especially if you commit to them Please remember if you get married or go into a committed relationship you should never think of yourself nor should you ever think of your partner those are the two alternatives which are wrong in a relationship when you're committed together you don't only think of us the third option which people often miss so there's many Thank third you. options both those are mid- first options are not really or that um helpful find a third option thanks excellent okay it's 5 minutes past 9 i think we just we're going to close the event so ajam ram thank you so much for your the insightful talk we are very grateful to have you here and i think this is the second time you visit melbourne so that's um really good and before we close uh the bsv committee wishes to thank all the volunteers who work very very hard for this event and i also want to thank everyone who spent your monday night with us um joining the trivia and also listening to the drama talk by ajam bram um if it is okay i would like to request everyone just to stand up while ajam bram is leaving the room And Ajam Ram please stand up as well. Okay. <laughs> if you are going to the room, you can stay here we want but <laughs> okay. Stay here overnight. So thank you everybody. Can we have three not three more sadhus? Sadhu. 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 And that's Excellent. also for Vali for thank you for your MC work. Ah, thank you Ajam.